Secondly, we know that you love us so much that you gave him for our sins. Father, we just thank you also for the marvelous, complete canon of scripture that you've preserved for our benefit. And we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit in our hearts so that we can understand what the word of God has to say. We ask this morning, Father, that the Holy Spirit would uh, guide and direct our thinking and concentration as we as we um, contemplate and learn about the portion that we have in the scriptures this morning. And, and Father, I do want to pray for my friend Bob McLaughlin, who is uh, in serious, serious situation with his health. And we just pray that you would watch over him and his family. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's now stand. seated. Welcome Ben, everybody. This is the first Sunday of May and we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end today. Also keep in prayer the uh, new facility that we are going to get in as soon as we can. Again, I want to give the address this morning. I know I've given it to you before, but maybe some of you haven't seen it, written it down or forgot it. The address is 3134, 3134 North Federal Highway, Lighthouse Point. And again, I'd ask you for prayer as we, uh, as the things, many things have to come into place in order for that to uh, be ready for us. Hopefully we'll still be able to get in by the end of May and perhaps have a first service uh, in early June. I'm not making any promises, though. I know how these things go. They're more complicated than you sometimes think they're going to be. Also, again, I want you to 
make sure you understand the schedule that I'll be taking some time off in May and June. And here are the dates once again. Um, two Sundays, May 28th and June 25th, last Sundays of each of those months. And then the, the thir- Thursday before May 25th, and then Thursday before and after June 25th, which are June 22nd and June 29th. So there's five, three Thursdays, two Sundays, and it's approaching. So we just want to make sure everybody knows that. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to either listen listen to one of our messages or find another church. Be careful when you go to another church. That's all I want to say because sometimes uh, things they teach these days, I don't know. But anyway. All right, let's begin. Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 1. John, chapter 14, verse 1. Yep. <laughs> Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This morning... We begin in chapter 14. We've seen the the dramatic and troubling events in chapter 13, particularly the the news that one of the 12 is going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that Jesus Christ is going to leave them. And at the very end, Peter, of course, boasting that he'll never leave the Lord, and the Lord says that before the cock crows in the early morning, you will have denied me three times. So that was very upsetting and so now the, sort of the page turns, and now the Lord is with his special brothers on the night before he's going to the cross. And t- we're going to see today that, um, first of all, this is uh, three chapters of the Lord teaching and comforting and preparing his, his uh, closest disciples. So um, it begins now, and, and, the, and the mood, the situation you know, the Lord, the Lord has said at the beginning of chapter 13, he loves his to the end. He realizes the, the what's happening in their hearts right now, that they are troubled. And so he is going to come and he's going to be very intimate, intimate, tender. But at the same time, he's going to tell them the truth about things that they need to hear. These these 11 had followed him through everything, through thick and thin. And just as he longed to share the Passover meal with them. Now he desires earnestly that they would come to fully understand him, to know who he is in all his glory. But they can't really do that. Not yet, anyway. Their flesh is weak. But not only that, the spirit hasn't been given to them. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 7, verse 39. John chapter 7, verse 39. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So as much as the Lord desires for them to know all about him, that won't really be possible until the Holy Spirit has been given to them. But he's going to do his best now. He's going to teach them things. And as we're going to see in a little while, but when, after he has, notice what it says here, after he's glorified, after he's died on the cross and raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, then the Spirit is given to his disciples. And at that point, the Spirit opens the eyes of their heart. They can recall, he helps them recall the things that Jesus said, and now they all make sense. Now, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John 
are documenting, actually chapters 2 through 12, are documenting the public ministry of the Lord, as we've seen many times. And one of the things that we saw over and over again was that Jesus was teaching the Jews, the Jews here being primarily, remember, the leadership. He's teaching them all kinds of things about himself. And yet, again and again and again, they refused to believe in him. They heard it. They refused to believe. But they weren't the only ones who heard those things. You see, the disciples were with him almost everywhere he went. And so they heard the same things. They witnessed the same events. They heard his words. But did they really understand them? Did they really understand the things that Jesus has said? Now, they, they wanted to. They were his disciples. They followed him. But did they really understand the things that he was saying? Or another way to ask that same question is how well did they come to know him? You know, our pastors this morning <laughs> says an awful lot about our human nature. We're going to see one, one, one thing in particular where, where the humanity of the, his disciples really shows. One thing about our nature now is that it's easily distracted, easily distracted for one thing. You know, uh, so many things in our lives will cause us to kind of put, for, forget what we've learned, not pay attention to what we should, be distracted. And we, the same thing happened to the, to the disciples of the Lord. Not only that, but our nature is prone to abandoning the truth when we're pressed. We, we already saw a hint of that with Peter, where he knows who Jesus is. He says he's going to be with him no matter what. But under that pressure that he's going to have, he is going to abandon the things he knows about Christ. We've often asked the question, for example, how could how could his mother Mary, after hearing all the things she heard and seeing all the things she heard about his birth, how could she come and and the Lord would basically say, "You don't understand me." You know how could how could that be? Well, it's because all human beings, we when we are under pressure, it's easy to abandon the truth. Not only that, but we have prejudices. We we come in with certain preconceived ideas. The disciples had their own preconceived idea about who the Messiah ought to be. They had their own preconceived idea about who they were, could be, become in the kingdom that they thought for sure he was going to bring. And the thing is, is that when we, we do have those prejudices, those preconceived ideas, we also have old habits, old ways of thinking. And we're prone to fall back into them, no matter how wonderful the new truth is that we've been given, we still are prone to fall back into our old habits and our old ways of thinking. And of course, our human nature is famously selfish. Selfish. We saw that with the with the with the twelve when they were coming in to the upper room and they were all arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And um and so and we see here that uh we're gonna see Thomas. We're going to see Philip, and we're going to see them unable, see them to be concentrating on their difficulties, their problems, and not really able to take in what the Lord was saying. But the questions that remain, were the disciples, for example, really paying attention when Jesus told Martha that he was the resurrection and life? They heard that, but were they paying attention? Did they really understand what he was saying. Did it did it did it totally revolutionize how they saw him? Or were they perhaps distracted? Were they were they perhaps mystified? Were they perhaps fearful that now that he's on the other side of the Jordan, danger awaits? We don't know the answer to it. But what we do know is that when we see that Jesus teaching them here in chapter 14, for the most part, almost exclusively, he is retelling things that he's already said about himself. And they clearly don't get it. They, they Either they've forgotten it or under pressure, they've ignored it or they're distracted. So this says a lot about our human nature. Not the new man, but of course the old man. Did they miss the point? When he said that he was the door for his sheep, did they miss that? Did they miss the point he was trying to make? Did they stop and consider the amazing implications of the statement he made that he and the Father 
were one. Please turn to John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. This morning he's going to tell them that he is the truth. But he had talked about the truth earlier. But he talked about it to the Jews who were who were resisting, who identifying who he is. Look at John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus had told those Jews that were gathered there what it took to be his disciples. That it wasn't simply a matter of seeing a miracle and being impressed by it, or not even simply a matter of thinking or even believing that he was going to be the great king, but there was a continuation that had to be a part of their lives in order for them to truly be disciples. And that was to come to know the truth. And Jesus is going to say in verse 6 of chapter 14, I am the truth. So really, he's saying, he's saying, you must come to know me. And when you know me, when you know the truth, the truth about all kinds of things, the truth about what's what's really happening on planet Earth, the truth about who God really is, the truth about what Jesus Christ really is going to do for them and has done for us, that will make you free. The Jews wanted no part of that. But what about the twelve? What about the 12? They were there and they heard the same things. These words especially applied to them. But but did they understand? Did they really comprehend this freedom that Jesus had spoken about? Did they also connect it with what Peter had said when most of Jesus' followers left him? Look at John chapter 6, verse 67. John chapter 6, verse 67. When Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And in the chapter right before that, he said to the 12, look at verse 67. Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away also, do you? See, this was where the where the, most of the disciples that had temporarily follow him were peeling away because of the things he said about his him being the bread from heaven that his body is real, his flesh is real food, and his blood real drink, and nobody comes to, the, comes to the Father unless he's been called. All those things caused many, many of the folks that have been following him to leave him, to the point where Jesus is left with the 12, and it's a sincere question. Do you, you don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. At that moment, I want you to notice something. That he, what he was saying was, you have the truth, and that truth leads to eternal life. I am the way and the truth and the life. They'd already heard it. As a matter of fact, Simon had already affirmed it. Did they ultimately, though, realize that they were hearing and seeing things that had been hidden from the prophets, hidden before the foundation of the world? Did they really understand that? Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 17. Matthew 13, 17. See, we... We are not all that much different from the 12. We have seen and heard things. We, we have heard, just like they did, that Jesus and the Father are one. We have, we have heard him say that if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But does that have an impact? Have we taken that in and, and said, there's one thing that I have to continue to focus on, one thing I do. And that's to learn more about who Jesus is. But do we? Do we have that same level of desire that we should have about his word, about coming to know him? 
We have we have heard so many things from the Apostle Paul about who we are, who we are in Christ. We're the adopted sons and daughters of the living God. We are in union with Jesus Christ permanently. All of our sins have been forgiven. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us this week have brooded on our sins and faults and failures, have said to ourselves, man, if I could only be what I want to be. But God, the father is looking down from heaven and he's shaking his head. He's saying, you already are. (laughs) I've already declared you to be perfectly righteous in my eyes forever. But, you know, under the pressures of life, under the disappointments, under the fear, under the failure, we can put that right out of our mind and we're right back to the old habits, treating ourselves, feeling guilty about things, being pessimistic about things. I mean, we have an inheritance that boggles the imagination. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men the things that God has prepared for us. But how often do we spend our days, our moments, and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody. Heck, I can I can get one text and it'll ruin my day. I mean, I'm a little extreme, right? I mean, being Irish and I go from this to that. But seriously, I can read one thing um, in the Wall Street Journal and like all is lost, right? Well, no. I mean, sure, this this terrible world, we already knew it. Jesus is going to say at the end of chapter, chapter 16, he's going to say, listen, this world is terrible. It hates me. It hates you because you're part of me. You're going to have trouble. But... Don't trouble your hearts. I have overcome all of that. He's overcome all of that. We're in him. He's in us. What do we have to be afraid of? If God did the best for us when we were at our worst, how is he not, now that we're in his son, give us every good thing? But you see, if we're not listening to the word of God, if we're not letting it transform us, having our minds renewed, we're going to miss the really good stuff. We're going to still be in the old habit of thinking that what God is talking about is a situation that I'm in, my job, my my problems, and those haven't all gone away. So I guess he's not giving me every good thing. Well, that's because you don't know or you've forgotten or you're not concentrating on what the really good things are, the, the, the things in heaven. He said, you've died down here. Keep your eyes on the things above where Christ is. That's where the good things are. And you're up there with him. I mean, just read Ephesians. All you have to do is read. If if you're feeling blue, if you're thinking that all is lost, if you're overwhelmed by the situation in your life right now, all you got to do is read Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And let that be your, your reality for a while. You know, live there for a while. And then you look back at all the things that were so maddening and realize that they pale in comparison to who you already are, what God's already done, and what's in store for you. And the more you live in that mental world, the less the problems of life are going to overwhelm you. It works. Really. It does. But now, like us so often, the 12, the 11 at this point, are overwhelmed They're overwhelmed by their current grief. And it's real. They're worried. How many times have they heard heard the Lord say, do not worry. You are more valuable than the the grass of the field and the birds of the sky. Don't worry about anything. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How often do we apply that? How often are are we spending time thinking about the problems that might happen tomorrow so that we don't enjoy the things that God has given us today? This is one of the things that, you know, in this day and age, we've got to come to terms with. You know, we're in an age where the media can is totally overwhelming us with lies, with things that would make us fearful, sad, despairing. And, and so if we're not careful, we're not going to look at the things that we have. I mean, in the United States of America, especially, we, we still have it pretty good, gang. I mean, if you want to understand what persecution really looks like, I would suggest that you subscribe to a newsletter like Voice of the Martyrs, like Barnabas Aid, or just read something about it and understand that Christians around the world, in terms of the things that we worry about anyway, have it way more difficult than we do. But you know the thing about that? 
is that when you're involved in that kind of life, when like 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 if you're in Pakistan and you're considered the lowest of the low because you're a Christian and what you're doing every day is you're going into the sewer and doing whatever they make you do in the sewer, you're covered with you know what, and you come back home and you got to take a half hour shower. Nobody wants to be around you because you stink. That's why they're so happy. <laughs> we get pictures from Pakistan and Nigeria and India, and the Christians, when they're there gathered together, are so happy. And what God is, God is really saying is that, you know, the good things, the, the, all the good things that I promised you have nothing to do with where you live or what you smell like or what your job is. They have everything to do with who you are, really, with, 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 with who I've given to you, with the word I've given you, with the promise I've given you. As bad as you think things are for you today, okay, all you got to do is think for a moment about one of your neighbors who's not a believer in Jesus Christ. And I don't care if they're a billionaire. Their life is not at all happy, healthy. They don't have any good thing. We well, yeah, think, wow, we're impressed. Look at the car. Look at the boat. Look at the wife. Look at the husband. Right. How about look at the heart? Do they, do they can they really have the real peace? If they're not a believer in Christ, if they're not learning what the word of God has to say, no. Jesus said, the peace I give you is not of this world. You know, these people will be tossing and turning and thinking that things depend on them and worried and fearful, ignoring things that they should be thinking about in terms of their destiny. That's way worse, honestly. That is way worse than spending a day in a sewer. It really is. we got to appreciate who we are, what God has given us. It's the disciples right now, man, I, I can't believe Peter is going to is going to deny the Lord three times. Oh, this is terrible. I can't believe that one of us is going to betray him. All is lost. I can't believe Jesus is going to leave us. I'm totally afraid now. I've despaired of everything. Can all these things really be true? Is Jesus really going to leave us? And that we're not going to be able to follow him? Was it all for nothing? He's just going to walk away and abandon us? That's where their mind is. Now, at that point in time, were they really understanding that he is the resurrection and the life? No. Right? That he says, I'll never leave you, I'll never desert you? No. That, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that he, he's going to have to leave them, but he's going to come back? No. No, they were, they, were, they were worried about their situation. Now, don't get me wrong. It was, they, it was a lot for them to take in. It would be a lot for any of us to take in. You know, you ever have that feeling where everything is going great, and all of a sudden, in a moment of time, everything just falls apart. And you can't even really remember what the good thing felt like. You know there was a good thing and you've lost it now and you think this is going to be terrible forever. Maybe it's not because someone is betraying your leader. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not because you're told that someone you love is going away or maybe it is. But it, but we all are susceptible to being overwhelmed by these things. And his disciples certainly were. They were broken. They were broken down. But not only that, Jesus knew what was laying in store for them, too. He knew that as he was going to go through his passion, they were going to go through the, the pain and the struggle. And it's going to be the kind of thing where not, not only do they have to deal with the terror of what Jesus is going to go through, and what they think is going to happen to them next, but they're going to have to also deal with the fact that they abandoned him, that they, that they didn't at all trust what he had to say. And so because of all that, they were definitely not prepared for what's about to happen. There's a future that's approaching quickly, and they're not ready for it. And Jesus knows it. But that didn't intimidate him. It intimidated them. But think about it again. If they had really understood what he said, where he says, I have to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get crucified, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be raised from the dead three days later, 
if they understood that he is going to the cross to die for all the sins of the world, and that if he was lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. He knew that. And so as, as unprepared as they were, he was totally prepared to do what? Well, as Isaiah says, surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows too. He's about to do that. So yes, they have sorrow. Yes, they have grief. But he's about to bear it all on the cross. He's ready. He's adequate to take on every one of their griefs, all the things that they were broken about, all their fears, all their guilt, all their sins, all their failures. And so even though when you think about it, he's the one that's going to go to the cross, be crucified, abused tomorrow. He's the only one in that room who at this point in time has the capacity to comfort and console anybody. So what does he do? He puts aside. He says, I'm, I have a job to do right now. No one tomorrow brings. But right now, I am here to comfort and teach and prepare my disciples. And that's what I'm going to do. In the wake of all of this turmoil that's in that room, Jesus is now going to settle their souls. And he's going to do it with a big old helping of comfort. He doesn't say this in as many words, but this is really the message that he's leaving to them, three of them. One, this will all end well. He's going to say, I am, I am going to the Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's your ultimate destination, guys. And I'm going to come back. And I'm going to take you with me. This is all going to end well. In the meantime, really, all you got to do is what you've been having such a hard time doing, which is simply keep your eyes on me. Recall the things that I've said. Recall the things that I've done. Finally, will you believe that I and the Father are one? Will you finally believe that? Will you finally believe the fact that I am the life, I am the resurrection, I am the light of the world? Will you finally believe that? If you keep your eyes on me, you'll start to do that. And then perhaps definitely most wonderful at all of all, he tells them this, you know, very soon, it will dawn on you, the fullness of who I really am. Everything I said, everything I did will finally make perfect sense to you. I want to show you why. Please go to John chapter 14, verse 25. John chapter 14, verse 25. This will all end well, guys. You can't see it now. You can't feel it now. You're overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, the guilt and fear despairing, frustrated. It's all going to be okay. I mean, it's the kind of thing you might say to a little kid. And by the way, we are little kids in terms of uh, why do you think God calls us, calls him a father? Because we need a dad. Why does, we'll see this in a minute, why does Jesus say, I am the good shepherd? Because we're sheep and we need a shepherd. But it'll all, win, all end well. Don't worry about anything. Here's what you need to do in the meantime, though. Just keep your eyes on me. Remember when Peter was in the boat and he said, Lord, call me out on the water with you. And the Lord said, yeah, come. And Peter was fine as long as he what? Kept his eyes on Jesus. And as soon as he did it, plunge. And yet the same promise. I'm, I got you. Right. I got you. You didn't do what I told you to do, but I got you. You're not faithful, but I am. And one day, it will dawn on all of us fully who he really is and who we really are. We will be really known as we are known. We will see us for who we truly are because we'll see him and realize that we're like him, not in his deity, but in his humanity. One day, it'll all make perfect sense. Here's the thing. Are you going to wait for the day when he actually appears in the clouds? Oh, it'll be a glorious day, but you don't have to wait I mean, Jesus says, look, I want you to follow me now. I want you to, I want you to continue in my word now. I want you to, in, in, in this world of sorrow and anger and craziness, I want you to have the peace here. I want you to do as much as you can to know more and more about who I really am now. I want, you, I want things to make perfect sense to you now when you really need it to, in, the, in the struggle, in the battle. He's left us on earth, and he's, gone, he's in heaven for the purpose 
of being able to overcome in the same ways he did. That is a glorious thing. We're not going to get to do that in heaven. We're going to do that here. We're going to get, we're going to, if we continue with his word, we're going to, we're going to understand more and more of the true nature of this world and more and more of what it means that God, that Jesus is overcoming. We're going to understand more and more and more how wicked we really were as unbelievers in Adam and how our flesh continues to be. And we're going to see victory after victory as we rely on the spirit and the word of God and not ourselves. Look at John chapter 14, verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. He's been with them three some years. He's spoken so many things. But they didn't, but there was a limit to what they could understand. The spirit may have been willing, but the flesh was weak. They, They weren't really able to overcome a lot of the things that came from their flesh. But notice verse 26. But the helper, you need help. You need a shepherd. You need a father. You need the Holy Spirit. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Do you have any idea about the power for knowledge and wisdom that resides in your heart? Because the Holy Spirit resides in your heart. The Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, resides in your heart. He can teach us all things. And he wants to. And he will, despite some of the the things that we do to get in the way of all that. But we don't have to get in the way of it anymore. He will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. See, Jesus is basically telling him, I know that you're not able to take in all that I said to you over these last three years, especially all the things he's going to say to him in the upper room. I know that. But I also know the solution. It's coming very soon. It will dawn on you fully who I really am because the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by the Father in his name, Jesus' name, and he's going to teach him all things. Sometimes we struggle because we try to do it ourselves. You know, there's this, there's this body of, of thinking or whatever called systematic theology. Okay. Brilliant people have done that. They put it all together, and somehow they think that their work is done and they got everything under control. (laughs) No, they don't. You see, it's not the mentality of our own human nature that matters. Look at the Jews in the Old Testament, if you think it has anything to it. Look at the disciples, right, of their own, as Jesus is going to say, you can do not a thing. I hope you value, therefore, and trust and rely on the things that the spirit is doing, that you, that the spirit is overcoming your flesh, that that there's a battle going on inside you and you're not fighting it. The spirit is fighting on your behalf. Now that ought to put you at rest. You know, how much, how much struggle and pain and difficulty and frustration and failure have you had in your life trying to, Overcome your sins. Try it. You look at yourself and you say, man, I've done that in the past. I'm still doing it. But somehow I'm going to have a New Year's revolution this year and I'm going to be able to beat it all. Right. Or I'm going to do a few of these steps and then everything will be good. That's the wrong place to look. <laughs> That's the, so do you, have you really taken a heart yet that nothing good dwells in your flesh? And that the only thing, the only person that can defeat the power of the flesh in your life is the Holy Spirit of God. Or are you still thinking that there's something you can do, something you can say, something that you can confess, something that you can change about yourself, some kind of a habit or practice or discipline that you can undertake that will do it instead of the Holy Spirit. And until you don't, until you just say that that's impossible, but God, with all God, with God, all things are possible. You're going to be miserable a lot of the time. Don't be, don't be. Take advantage of the things that God has given you. All right, let's go back to our passage, John chapter 14, starting again in verse one. Verse 
Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If your heart is troubled today, you don't have, it doesn't have to be. But what do you do? You believe on God and you believe in Jesus Christ. If you, if you, if you keep your mind on Jesus, your heart will no longer be troubled. If when something is coming upon you and you feel that thing in your gut and instead of, of obsessing on it, you just pray and you give it to God, your heart will be, will no longer be in trouble. Verse two, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you that. For I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going, but I'm going somewhere for you. If it, if it were not so, I would not have told you. I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and I'm going, I told you I am, and prepare a place for you, well, guess what? I'm going to come back again and receive you to myself. What good would it be? What, what sense would it make for Jesus to be in his father's house and prepare a room for you and then realize you can't get there and not come and bring you? That make any sense? No, it wouldn't make any sense. So, of course, he's going to come back. So they should at that point be saying, oh, okay, he's going to leave us for a while. But let's think about where he's going. Let's be happy for him. Let's be happy for us because when he gets there, we're not far behind. And we're not going to have to find our way up there. He's the way. All we got to do is wait for him and he's going to bring us there. Awful lot of pain in life can be can be did, can be solved by simply believing what God has said and trusting and relying on his word above all things. Verse three, again, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And I love verse four. And you know the way where I am going. Verse four is the test. What do I mean? Well, you can either, when you, when you hear, okay, there's a way and I'm supposed to know it, you can either say, gee, I got to find it for myself. Gee, I don't know what I know. I don't know what highway I take to get to the father's house. Or you can just re relax and let him tell you. What does he say? I'm going, but I'm going home. You're all, you're all depressed that I'm going, but I'm going home. When I get there, I'm going to set about preparing a room for each and every one of you. Then I'm going to come back to get you and bring you home. Home is where my father lives. And soon we'll all be living together in my father's mansion. And you know the way where I am going. You do know, don't you? Or have you been distracted by present circumstances? Jesus is saying, I need your attention now. <laughs> and in the very next verse, look at verse five. In the very next verse, Thomas confirms Jesus' suspicion that they really didn't get it. Notice, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. What? I mean, talk about befuddled, bewildered. What did Jesus just say? I am going to my father's house. But Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> How do we know the way? Well, I am going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And then I will come and receive you to myself. Okay, but where are you going? Where you sleep? I'm going to my father's house. Okay, but we don't know the way there. I just told you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you there myself. All you got to do is keep your eyes on me and it will end well and you'll learn more about who I really am. Or very simply, you don't need a map. All you need is me. I mean, it's kind of like you think about the family trip and you're going and you're in the back seat. And you kind of don't know where you're going or how to get there, but you know you want to get to Disney World. But instead of relying on your father, who's been there 30 times and knows the way inside and out, imagine if you were in the backseat. We don't have paper maps anymore. 
But let's say you were on your phone. You were trying to find, okay, route, route, whatever, route 441 is, I don't know where that is. All you need is that. You don't need a map. To get to heaven, you don't need to do it yourself. You don't need to climb every mountain. All you need is Jesus. All you need is the fact that his way went through the cross. His blood was was the remedy for all your sins. His very crucifixion is the remedy for who you were in Adam. You don't need a map. You just need Jesus. We got to believe this was this had to be on some level maddening to Jesus to hear this. But he's not he's on face because why? You see, he knows their limitations. That ought to relax you. Why? Because he knows yours, too. I mean, you know, uh, I spent a lot of grief in my life reading things, particularly in the Gospels and realizing that I could never do that. How am I supposed to sell everything I have and follow Jesus? How am I supposed to pick up my cross and follow him? How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to forgive my brother 70 times, seven times a day? But Jesus, what? Knows our limitations. (laughs) He He knows fully well that we can't do any of it unless we have him unless we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Without me, you can do nothing. So in the face of all of the legalistic notions we put on ourselves, I got to do this, I got to do that, I failed, what do I do? I need a 12-step program. I need to go in a box and confess all my sins. I know this time for sure, if I just do that stuff, I'll be perfect. That's when you have the biggest falls of your life. Jesus knows your limitations. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your failures. He knows all about them. He knows the sins you committed and the sins you're going to commit tomorrow. And it didn't matter. He went to the cross for you anyway. And God the Father took a look at you the moment you believed in Jesus. And he said, you're righteous in my eyes now forever." How often do we believe that? (laughs) Yeah, he knows how weak they were. He knows how weak we all are. And he knows quite simply that we're sheep and we need a shepherd. Oh, and that reminds me of a psalm. Let's go to Psalm 23. It says very well what Jesus is really all about here with his disciples and with us. You could probably say it by heart. We sang it this morning. But let's read it. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He shall not want. If all we got to do is just put everything in the hands of our shepherd and all will be well. If we need water, He'll bring us to the place of of refreshment. If we need to have our souls restored, he'll do it. It, It's the thing that we have a hard time and you you can't miss here is that he does it. He does it. He does it. That's grace. Again, verse verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me do it. He says, listen, I'm going to bring you there and I'm going to have you lie down here. He leads me beside quiet waters. And then verse three, he restores my soul. We ever in a situation where you were all upset about something and all worked up. And and have you ever tried to restore your own soul at that point? It's really hard. It's really hard. You know, I think we tell our kids the wrong thing sometimes when we say, you know, I'm going to give you this ritual. All right. You're going to, you're just going to get centered again. You just breathe five times, all will be well. No, <laughs> I know. I know people think that, but really, the truth is, is that God restores our soul. He guides us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. This is exactly what Jesus is going to do now with His disciples. He's going to go around restoring their troubled souls. He does it. 
I don't know what the unbeliever does right now, but I know that believers in Christ have a have the God who's going to restore your soul for you. And then verse six, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. On a soap opera. It's the truth. I'm showing my age now. There's a soap opera called The Days of Our Lives. Mm-hmm. Woof. In any event, he, notice what he's saying. Surely goodness, the grace of God, loving kindness will follow me. Do you believe that? Do you believe as you leave today that there's, some, there's two things are going to follow you out and stay with you and be there for you? God's very goodness and his grace. And it's going to be there all the days of our lives. And the thing about it is, is let's not be like Jacob. And only at the end of our lives, when our hip is hurting and we're on a, we're, we're leaning on a cane and we're looking back and we're saying, gee, I think he really was. But rather, let's say now, I know he has, I know he's going to do it. And, and I am just going to enjoy that now. I'm going to take this one day at a time understanding that his grace is following me along. And then at the end, all ends well. Why? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And Jesus has prepared one for me. Back in verse 6, John 14. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, Philip, I am the way. I am the way. You don't know the way. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I I think, I can't prove it, that Jesus took a moment first to just look into the eyes of, of each of his disciples and then with tenderness and authority said I am the way but he had said that to them before I am the way look at John chapter 10 verse 7 if they had been paying attention if they had understood that they were in what Jesus is saying when he's drawing a picture of his sheep and of him, that they're his sheep. Look at what he said. John 10, 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the way. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. But if anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. If you have if you have things going on in your life, and you're seeing the things in your life or the people in your life, to steal and kill and destroy, that's not from God. That's from the thief. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then verse 11, I am a good shepherd. And notice what he says next. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If they had been paying attention, if they weren't just sitting around and saying, I love this story. I love the picture of sheep in the pen and the shepherd coming in. And boy, what a great shepherd. I want to be that shepherd someday. And I want to be tough enough to lay down my life for sheep. I really like sheep. Or, but instead, if they understood that he was talking about them and talking about him and he was going to die for them, they should have known it in verse 11, where he was, where he was going and the way he was going to take. He was going to go by means of the cross he was going to die for their sins, just like the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the way, 
Jesus said. He doesn't just know the way. He is the way. Let that sink in. He is the way. So I'm sure he gave them a moment just to take that in. I mean, sometimes we read this fast, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. And we want to get intellectual about it. I used to do a great time getting intellectual about that passage. I wonder all the things that the way is. How does that lead to the truth? How does that lead to the life? I don't think that's how it was for them. I think he just gave them a moment to take the first, to take that in. I am the way. Let them think about that. He wasn't finished. I am the way, and there's something else you need to know about me. Something else. What? I'm the truth. Haven't you always yearned for the truth? I mean, as bad as we are, we want to know the truth. And Jesus said the truth will set us free. But the question is, can you really trust anybody to always give you nothing but the unvarnished truth? Can you? No. Can you go to the Wall Street Journal and get all the truth? No. Can you go to the New York Times, everything fit to print, and think, well, that's the truth? Can you listen to can you listen to your, your uncle, or your aunt, and listen to them and listen to what they say, their their tales of the past, and say, well, that's the truth? No. You know, if if you have a, a difficulty and all you're doing is going to other people, and you're not going to the Word of God, you won't get the truth. But there is one person that you can trust to give you the unvarnished truth about everything. And, 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 and Jesus is saying, you know what? You found him. Actually, correct that. He found you. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth. In the Old Testament, I, I, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to put the passages up. If you're really fast, you can come with me. I'm just going to read them. In 2 Samuel 7, 28, now, O Lord, this is David. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. Where can you go to get the unvarnished truth? I know you know this, but let's connect the dots. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he's basically saying, I am God. My words are God's words, which is something he had said many times. And if they had been paying attention and took it in and soaked it up and understood it, they would have already gotten this. Or in Psalm 31.5, these, these are words that Jesus spoke on the cross, by the way. Psalm 31.5, five, five, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Truth is who God is. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, and the only one who can truthfully make that statement is God, and what is Jesus saying? I'm God. And he had to, but he had to say that again to these folks. Even though he said he's shown all the miracles, even though he said, I and the Father are one, even though he said before Abraham was, I am, he's still, once again, gotta gotta get it in their hearts and focus that he's God. Or another psalm that psalmist said boldly in Psalm 119, verse 160. If you want to know what truth is. It's the sum of your word. What, what is that saying? It, mathematically, if you take all of God's words and you put them all together, what you have is truth. Now, not, not simply the truth, but truth. In other words, that's if you want to know all the truth, it just sum up all the words of, of God, and that's it. And only that. That's truth. You're not going to find it. In the library, you're not going to find it by going to Harvard University. You're not going to find it by trying to research 20 things. You can find what really matters, what things are all about, and completely in the Word of God. And quite simply, Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. So Jesus is putting the, the, the pieces together. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth. I am God. I am the Word of God. And then, of course, I am the life. You know, Peter said, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. But this is even more astounding. He says, I am eternal life. Can you see how it's absolutely essential and logical that all we got to do is keep our eyes on Jesus? When he is the way to heaven, when he is the sum of truth, 
and he is eternal life. What more do you need? As he, as he, as he probably thought, he didn't say, you know, I revealed to Martha and now I'm saying to you, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am life itself. The only life that's real life is Jesus. There's no life apart from me. In him was life, and life was the light of men. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are no different from the disciples in the sense that we're thick-headed and we're slow to learn, slow to, to understand. And, and, and you've given us incredible treasure. And all we got to do is continue in the word and we will know the truth and the truth will make us free. And we will come to know Jesus Christ and you, the one who sent him. Father, now we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, help this be a time when we can once again reflect and have the Holy Spirit teach us anew about the marvels of what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And this time, I would like you to uh, take care of your communion elements and we'll get started. Amen. Amen. In chapter 5 of the book of Romans, Paul writes, Much rather, therefore, having now been justified in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, we shall be saved by him from wrath. In the very next chapter, in chapter 6, we read, For if we have become identified with him in the likeness of his death, so also we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Notice verse 6, I'll read it to you. Knowing this, that our old man has been crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be annulled, that we should no longer serve sin. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 are saying two different things about the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. See, when Christ died, he shed his blood, and his body was crucified. You know, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper when we're going to talk about the body and the blood. Well, at the cross, he shed his blood and his body was crucified. And Romans 9 tells us that we've been justified by his blood. And chapter 6 says, our old man has been crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be put out of business. So you have the blood taking care of our sins and you have the cross putting our body of sin out of business and removing sin as our master. That's what Romans 6, 5 and 6 tells us. So how does this work? Well, ungodly man, here's the gospel, believes justified by the blood of Jesus. His blood freed us all from the penalty of sins. We've been forgiven of all of our sins. The saved believer that now has already been delivered from sin's power. So we have the penalty of sins by the blood, the power of sin by the cross of Christ. The death of Christ serves two purposes when it comes to the sin issue. The forgiveness of sins by his blood, deliverance from the power of sin by his cross. All gifts of grace by faith in this sacrificial death that accomplished it on our behalf, Christ's death. Cross of Christ, another way of thinking of it is it cuts us off from the root. If you think about sin in its totality as a tree, the cross of Christ cuts us off from the very roots of sin. And the blood of Christ has disposed of the fruit, the acts of sin. We are permanently identified with Christ the moment we believe in him. And that very identification with Christ on the cross broke the power of sin in our life. His blood 
and his cross. When we eat the bread and drink the cup today, let's simply reflect on our redemption by the blood of Christ and our deliverance from sin as a master by the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 Corinthians 11.23, we read, Paul writes, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. His blood redeemed us from our sins. This cup that we drink is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes We proclaim the fact that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ and we've been cut off from the power of sin by his cross. And we get to remember this most vividly on the basis of the Holy Spirit that's in our hearts. Never forget that. Don't don't think you're just doing it by the force of your brain, but the Holy Spirit will bring the things to your remembrance. Okay, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have received greatly from your word of God this morning. And we know that while the things of life may be intimidating to us, they're not intimidating to you. And if we just keep our eyes on Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work, we will, we will, we will be having hearts that aren't troubled any longer. and we'll, we'll have a part in the peace that surpasses understanding. We thank you profusely for all these grace gifts. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed. Enjoy this day. I know the heat is coming, but let's enjoy it while it's still in the 80s.